I feel like I am sort of like the anti-benchmark. Just because things are the way they are doesn't mean they aren't really broken and doesn't mean that there isn't a way to ultimately change them. And in fact, that might be a moral good. Most people are out there chasing the golden record. Whatever the game is to play, they're following the game. There's a world in which chasing metrics and outcomes and following routines and paths leads to goodness. And there's another path, which is somewhat more difficult to describe, but clearly happens. Which of these two worlds do you think is real? And I was like, why don't we act as if the world is Rick Rubens? Why don't, why don't you and me do that? And she literally started to cry a little bit. This will probably get me in trouble. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. How often do you stop and ask yourself, why am I operating the way I do? Why am I making decisions the way I do? Even if you're running a business and you're a leader, for example, and I think about maximizing shareholder value, is my approach actually correct? It might sound very philosophical, but sometimes we need to have philosophical conversations to get us to start to think differently. In fact, how often the leaders actually stop and ask that question, when my business is best, what does that actually look like? It's a great question to ask. And it fundamentally comes down to choice. What choices are we making? Are we making choices because we have stopped and really thought about things or are we really operate on autopilot? That's the conversation I have today with my guest. We touch on a number of different areas. And without further ado, I'm going to hand over to him and ask him to introduce himself. Hey, everybody. My name is Chatham Sullivan. I'm in the States, uh, right outside of Boston. You know, you know those people, uh, Sobe, who have like, really great little pithy sound bites about their life and their biography. Like I'm not that guy. I, I always I want that. I'm like 47. I'm, I was hoping at some point I would have that like 20 second and you're like, Oh, I get Chatham down to his core. Like I don't have that. So I'm not going to give your listeners that little bit. I, I don't, it's funny. So, so my career has evolved in a lot of different ways. I mean, I'm an organizational psychologist and probably a little bit of an organizational associate. So I study systems, institutions, organizations, and I intervene with them. I design and build stuff in them. Um, but I think, and so I could talk about that and where I've taught and written and stuff, but really what I think I, what I'm excited about what I do now is I, I kind of uh, build weird uh, new things inside of organizations, rituals, structures, whatever it might be that kind of open them up and allow them to breathe and to evolve in a different type of way. And, um, I think so, so I've got one, so I have clients, right? Like large, big branded companies. And like one of them, uh, that shall remain nameless, like basically has me in as like an innovator in residence, but it's more like an outsider in residence, right? Like I, they give me permission to have an outsider view. They have, they give me permission to question, uh, their, their own orthodoxies to design something that might be a little spicy for them to teach them how they could do this for them themselves. Um, and so that's usually what I'm doing these days. And it can be building anything from like, 
you know, it could be like for a, a, a big ad, iconic ad agency wants to figure out how to organize its teams in a way that it can basically do more creative work for its clients. It can be other cases, like I've got one that's sort of bubbling up, which is everybody's like most hated uh, corporate practice, which is the performance review. So, you know, they're like, hey, help us think differently. I'm like, I'll help you, but you can't, you can't let, we're not going to follow the script on this one. You have to give me some room to do this differently because if you did do it differently, it's so bad, you could actually create a lot of human good because every, it's like a tax, man. No one really learns that much from these things. And so I get to be a little bit like um, an outsider who can challenge. I, you know, the cool thing about my background is that I focused enough on innovation and business that I really get business, I think, pretty well. But I've also spent a lot of time in leadership and culture. So I understand the soft stuff as well and a lot on design. So how do you design things? So that's kind of basically what I spend most of my time doing these days. So I like, I'm not even an expert in any one thing. I'm usually just brought in to like, hey, help us think about this. Uh, solve for that. Uh, so, oh, one more thing I'll add. When I was uh, younger, not like really young, but like 27, like I just finished my dissertation and I was like, oh, I know I'm going to end up in the work world and like I get stuck there and I'll never have like any time for myself. And so I became a fly fishing guide in Wyoming. And, um, and I was really myself, not a very good angler, you know, but I was good at teaching it. And I think there's a little bit of the same thing in what I do now professionally, which is I don't go catch fish for people. So I'm not like a consultant that goes in and like solves your problems and gives you the output and the slide decks. And it's more like teach a person to fish. So I think when it's good, I'm teaching and they're catching the fish. And when I was a fly fishing guy, by the way, one of the big no-nos is like you would be out there with some guy or actually women were better at fly fishing quite often, but you'd be out with some guy and he was having a rough time and you're putting him in front of the fish and there's little bugs coming up and the fish is sipping and you'd get frustrated and you say, let me just show you how to do it. And you catch the fish for them. You should never do that. Right. So there's a little bit of that in the work that I do too, which is like, you want to put them in the right water with the right fly, with the right cast, the right approach. And if you get lucky, they catch it themselves. But honestly, sometimes I end up like throwing the line in myself and, you know, trying to pull something out. So anyway, that's kind of it. And my company is called N of One, which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> I think about it. N of One comes from this idea in, uh, in medical science. If you do an N of One experiment, it means one case, one patient. You deeply understand and you build treatment just for that one person. If it was like, um, if it was like, it's sort of like hot couture uh, uh, fashion, right? You make one dress, one occasion, one person. Like, so it's very bespoke. But then I realized that the other part of it is like, end of one, it's kind of just me. Like I'll bring a bunch of different weird people into the mix to make something happen, but mostly it's me. So I don't know. I'm like, I, I kind of wish I was a, sometimes a part of like a big enterprise, but I function best myself. And that gives me a lot of freedom to do some cool stuff and meet a lot of really interesting leaders across the world and, and sometimes rarely build something good. You know, that's the hope. See, I, I, I like that more than a very 20%, 22nd sound line. Oh, really? Oh. You don't get to know and understand yeah, yeah. what a person is all about and the different elements. And even what you said around in the name of your company, but that also means that when you create those couture pieces, you create something that's very unique. And 
I think a lot of times we see a lot of, I say, out-the-box solutions, which are rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, but then you end up seeing the same problems play out over and over and over again because to actually create something that is unique and different takes time, Yep, takes curiosity, and takes courage. And it's interesting when I think about those words and I think about you and obviously your background as an oxycologist and everything else. Generally speaking with oxycologists, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the ones I've come across, they work in a very linear kind of way in the way that they approach things. So I'm curious, like, how is it that you think about things very, very differently? In fact, if I was to go like way back to a younger you, how did you even start to move into the world of oxycologists and, and then go into different companies you worked for? Yeah, I... It's weird. I mean, you're right. I think, I feel like I am sort of like the anti benchmark, like, you know, which gets me in trouble. I think, I think part of it, if you go back, if you, you know, if you went way back in my history and this is when I was younger and it was like, it wasn't always constructive. I think I really challenged authority all the time from a very young age, probably had to do with my relationship with my father and a bunch of other things that were happening. Um, and so I always had an instinct for it. I would never take, if, let's play with the benchmark. I would never take the benchmark as something that one should do simply because it was the benchmark. I don't know. Like that, you know, there's people like that, right? And and I, and when I was younger, it was probably like rebel without a cause and kind of like just raw emotion. And But over time, it developed into like a ability to see things, like see the system, like see how it really operates and have and be sort of tuned into the way that just because things are the way they are doesn't mean they aren't really broken and doesn't mean that there isn't a way to ultimately change them. And in fact, that might be a moral good because when you, I mean, the one good thing about making a bespoke anything is that like, it's a moment when you, um, you birth something into the world, you make it like it's a, it's an experience of creativity and almost everything is really good at its beginnings, you know, like whether it's like a genre of music uh, or a style or even science in the beginning, there's energy, there's something new that it's challenging, whatever had preceded it. That was pretty deterministic. And, uh, when you're making something new, you feel like you're saying something about yourself, you know, you're disclosing something about yourself. And I really have always loved that. I think, but on the technical side, I mean, I had a couple good mentors who were like really good at what they did. Some of them were older generation, like almost like my parents' age. Some were actually peers that were exceptionally good at stuff. Um, and so I think that was part of it. I also, I don't know. I think um, maybe when I was really young, I like wanted to master my field. And then as I got even a little bit older, I got way more curious about other fields. And then when you, so when you get exposed to bodies of knowledge outside of your own, let's say it's organizational psychology or business, you just instinctively start to develop a more uh, jaundiced view of your own field. You can see it differently, right? You can just, because you know there are different ways of thinking about it. So I've always felt like my unique skill and what I like to do was to think outside of management orthodoxy in some way and see if that could be useful. I mean, somebody's got to do it, right? Like that was one of my things. Like I might not be good at it, but somebody's got to do it. Like it's just, you know, most of the business world, it's like, it, it's like buzzwords. It's like pablum. It's like the same stuff over and over and over again. And it just, it always just drive me 
drove me crazy. And so there's something refreshing to being like, all right, well, that's there. What if you did something different? What if you looked at a different field? So I have like a really good friend, for example, who is an organizational uh, sociologist. And he, I think instinctively, instead of studying any organization, study the way that kind of elite culinary innovation was done. Because, you know, chefs don't aren't, aren't trained as MBAs. They know nothing about the way that institutions and organizations work. So he got to see very closely what's it like for an organization that repeatedly creates world-class Michelin star restaurants. Like, what are they doing? How are they innovating? And is there anything from that, that raw kind of laboratory that we could then import back into organizations? And like, that's a good example. I love that stuff. Like that, to me, that's refreshing. You feel like you're, I don't know, you're like, you're in a garden in which there's all these beautiful things getting made and you're not just repeating what had preceded it. So anyway, that's a long, that's a long, I think some of it's personal and personal biography and life circumstance. And then, you know, part of it's just finding a nice niche. Yeah. You know, where you like, you know, like the, like I've got a friend who's a psychoanalyst and like a lot of it is about, you have to sublimate your own stuff. Right. So I've got, you know, if I'm, if I feel inherently edgy, like I'm always questioning an institution or, or authority in general, or the way things are, there's a way that that's destructive. It's counterproductive. You're not helping anybody, but if you can turn that into something good and generative and productive, then maybe you got a chance of like taking some of the stuff you're working on throughout your life and still, you know, making something good that helps other people's lives. So I think that's been like, that's a long journey. I mean, I'm 47. So it's like, you you wouldn't have heard this from me when I was like even 30, but now I feel like it's, you know, starting to happen. I guess like that sparks that curious around with the experience you've had now, how do people then learn how to channel something like that to ensure that it doesn't turn destructive, but instead you can use it as something to actually drive you forward or to create something new that can actually be helpful. So create the opposite effect because... What I tend to see a lot of times, it's, it eats people up inside. Even people that I've seen, um, have a conversation with recently, and they talked about how some of the issues they had from when they were younger and they were kind of disregarded. It became this, I'm going to show you. And it drove them for years. And it got to a point where they didn't realize it. But when they looked back, it was driving them. It was also eating them up. And it became very, very destructive for them. And we're talking about how do you begin to channel that and identify the things that you can start to make shifts about or slow down and realize certain things are not good for you. I like that. I mean, I kind of have an answer for that, which is it has to be bigger than you. It has to be more than, than, than what you need or what your ego needs or whatever, like, you know, wounds that you carry around with you. Like you can't do it for that reason, even if those things are like, give you a lot of raw material to like push you forward. I was thinking about, um, so you know Rick Rubin? Uh, Rick Rubin, the producer. So he's he's the guy who basically st started Def Jam with Russell Simmons, like in his NYU uh, dormitory. Like, you know, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, early LL Cool J, uh, found Chuck D that then turned into public. We all this amazing stuff. And then it went into like rock and roll, restarted Johnny Cash's career. Anyway, there's a book that he wrote that just came out. And then there was a 60 Minutes piece with like Anderson Cooper on it and and one of the things was and i was like really trying to interpret what rick rubin's magic was and one of the things that i 
gleaned, especially from the 60 minutes pieces. So Anderson Cooper comes to his house and he's got this like studio. It's like called Shangri-La. I think it's in Malibu. And there, and one of the things that Anderson Cooper notices is like, there's no golden records on the walls anywhere. And Cooper's like, Hey, you got to have an ego room somewhere. Like what's going on here. And he then says, Rick Rubin says something to the effect, like, look, that's a distraction. Like my job here is to make beautiful music. And it, and it was almost like what I took from it, it's like, almost like the more that you, you aim for something, the less it comes into existence. Like you have to know what you're doing it for. And then he had, they had Kesha, which I don't know well, but I got a pop singer and Kesha was in the recording studio and she was asked about Rick Rubin and Anderson asked Kesha about it. And Kesha says, oh, this guy has like really changed my life. And, uh, and, and Cooper's like, oh, you know, say more. And she says, yeah, I, I asked him what he want to do. And he said, all I want to do is make beautiful music. And then Kesha says, that's crazy. And has this look. And I was like, I wish Anderson Cooper asked the question, why is it crazy that all he cares about is the, the beauty of the music? And I think it's because most people are out there chasing the golden record. Out there, you know, whatever the, the game is to play, they're following the game. And I think for me, just to bring this back to like how I think creativity works is, and I think what Rick Rubens is saying is that you have to do the thing for itself. You have to do it for something beyond even the immediate outcome of hitting some metric or getting to some goal. Like you have to fall in love with the experience of making or building something itself. And that also has to, that always has to be outside of you in some kind of way. And I think if you can really keep that in play, then you've got a really good chance of being successful because it's the ego and the complexity and the noise and the, like even Rick Rubin was like, oh no, the audience, the audience comes last, which is totally surprising to me. He's like, no, I listen to the music. And there's all these stories that we could talk about on the creativity side of him. Like he's like ear to the ground listening to an artist's music, waiting to get something that might speak to him as being important. And then with the artists, they, 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 they conjure this thing into existence. And it's that conjuring that he is like focused on. It's not the stuff, it's not the good stuff that will happen if he does it. And so I sort of think like that. I think it's like, and I've had a lot of experiences lately, like in the last five years, when you just fall in love with doing the work and you do it well, and you do it for the right reasons, like, like it sounds a little mysterious, but good stuff will happen. If you do it because you're afraid, if you do it because you got to hit some metric or you have to, you have to do it because somebody else is doing it, or this is what one does, like usually not good stuff happens. So there's a little bit of like a leap of faith, I think, you know, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but I'm pretty sure like creatives and artists have that instinct that they realize they're kind of a vessel for something cool. They're doing it for the right reasons. If they lose track of that, bad stuff happens. If they can stay in that pocket, good things happen. So I think I think something like that. I think really good leaders that I've seen help people stay in the pocket, right? Like they help people stay connected to the work, uh, solving the problem, figuring it out. All the other stuff, those distractions, they, they're able to actually eliminate those from the field of play and keep people playing. So- Again, long-winded answer. It's not exactly, but yeah, I think it's yeah. Don't chase the golden record. That's that's the that's the false idol. That's the false god, you know. And be able to see that 
you know, I think I think like a Rick Rubin of the world probably sees the need to like get hits or get golden records as like not what he's really up to. And so I think really good leaders, really good creators know what they're up to and they've they've kind of made a commitment to it. And I think that frees up some space to do good stuff. When you got shareholders who want their their stock prices to go up when you have other people, other resources that are clawing at at your time, um, metrics, targets, all this different good stuff. And when you go into an organization and one of the first questions is like, so how are you going to measure success? How are you going to define like, all these different things, which are part of the way that most organizations operate? Is it the fact that you need a strong enough leader to, to be like, nope, we're going to take a leap of faith and step into something. Because even when you talk about some of the work that you do and the creativity that you, how you show up in organizations, the standard thing is we want someone to come in and be an expert and teach our people or fix X, as opposed to no, because that's very short-term thinking. Instead, it's going to be, well, I'm going to come in and going to help your people. I'm going to teach them how to fish. So that going forward, when things, when X and Y and Z happens, they have a better idea how to be able to navigate. So that's very long-term thinking. But as good as that is, we also know that that is scary for a lot of organizations to step into because it's it's new, it's it's unique. To so number one, it's still something that's been predefined there. And they can, and you don't always be like, oh, the tiny resort's going to be X, Y, Z. It's no, we're going to experiment and figure some things out. So how do you? move organizations into the the lens of thinking that Rick Rubin way of thinking rather than chasing the golden records because they invite you in so you must be doing something right to be able to get them to understand that this is this is important for them to be it's interesting because I mean we could go deep here I was I was actually with my partner Vanessa we watched the 60 minute piece and we watched it and I was like well, what do you think and she was like oh you know, Rick Rubin's kind of enlightened. It sounded like he was enlightened since he was like young because he's like in college and already has an instinct for music. And, he, you know, he's not going to be the kind of guy who's like chasing down coffees for an exec at Sony so he can get a, a job that then gets him into music. He's like straight there. And and I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. And I was like, but, and, and I think she was also saying like, yeah, fine for Rick Rubin. He's like special. Like he's, that's Rick Rubin's world. The rest of us, not so much. I, like, I don't actually think that's how Vanessa thinks. And so I was like, Vanessa, but like, is he right about the world? Like, let, let's just say there's a world in which chasing metrics and outcomes and following routines and paths leads to goodness. And there's another path, which is somewhat more difficult to describe, which, but clearly happens because Rick Rubin is doing it, right? Um, which of these two worlds do you think is real? Like actual work. And she's like, the second one, it's like the, the world as it really should operate and probably does is Rick Rubin's world. It's not the game that we have to play to get ahead world. And I was like, why, why don't we play? Why don't we, why don't we act as if the world is Rick Rubin's? Why don't, why don't you and me do that? And she literally started to cry a little bit. And I was like, and she said, she's like, Chatham, you have a business, you have an audience, you have to like, pretend as if you have answers or you're speaking a language that they're comfortable with. Like, and I was like, I know, but even when I do my best work, it looks more like Rick Rubin than it does the other thing. And it was interesting. Her next move was sort of like, you can't do that if you have children. 
You know, it was like, we have mortgages. We've got a house. You've got people to take care of. I've got people to take care of. Like, there's only so much. And it, to me, like, the reason I'm telling you the story, uh, and this was just like the other day, is because I think we live, let's call it world A. World A is like, you, if you measure stuff, you can manage it. You can get to it. And you got to remember, a, a, met, a measurement is just an abstraction. It's a representation of life. It's like a little slice of life. But real life is different. It's unpredictable. It sort of ushers forward and like, like comes into being. Um, and the good stuff seems to come from that world, not the other world. And I think, I think I'm torn. I'm torn about which one to follow because even if you said like shareholder value, let's take that one. Like this will probably get me in trouble with some people, maybe even my clients. But shareholder value is a number. Shareholders don't care about that company. They care about maximizing the investment they made in that company. And when it no longer meets their needs, they're going to take that money and put it someplace else. That's how it works. They don't care about the product or the customer or the things that are really going on inside of the organization. A shareholder value is fungible. It's just a piece. It's money that's exchangeable in any kind of circumstance. What a company really does, though, it builds something. It makes something that solves a problem that a customer has. It's much more contextually rich. It's alive. People have feelings about it. You can feel good about it. You can, you can, you can evolve it over time. So I think in the innovation world, most people know that sometimes the pursuit of profit will actually end up shooting yourself. You'll shoot yourself in the foot, right? If you're going to maximize today, you're going to get, go for efficiencies. You're going to, you know, when some tech company, you know, like take like a Google, for example, in the beginning, they made this beautiful search engine, but over time, like making money from sponsors became a bigger part of their business model. So now when you search, you see a lot of advertisements everywhere, right? And so it's hard for a company not to maximize and exploit the thing that they have to make more and more money, even a great company. But I think every good business person knows at the end of the day, you can only do that so far before you destroy the thing in itself. So if we know that, why wouldn't we operate in a totally different type of way that might be a more Rick Rubin way of operating because clearly the guy gets hits over and over and over and over again. So it's not like this is like some kind of like woo woo way of thinking about business. Like if you look at these examples, they're showing us that there is a different style of work that can be not just more meaningful, produce more joy, but actually put more good stuff in the world that makes more money. So I think it's like, um, I mean, this is cliche, but do you do it for the profit or you do it for the thing itself and then the profit naturally ensues because you've done the work? Or do you organize all your work around profit? And I think the answer to that, if you organize all your work around profit and all the instrumental steps to get to that, you tend to make crappy stuff. So it's like, which of the two do you believe in as a person? And which one is maybe not as it a person you believe, but which one is more empirically real? And I think for me, my... I think my head and my heart is like more on this other side, but there's a part of me that's like, yeah, Chatham, but that's not the real world. The real world is this game. You got to play this game. So, you know, like I'm, I'm not trying to like be, I think it's like difficult and hard and, and management people have, they've, they've gotten a little, they've, they've got an elegant little solution for this. And it's been around for a long time. They call it exploration and exploitation. So, exploitation is I have a model, I have a product. I'm going to exploit it to make as much money, as much profit. I'm going to scale it up globally. I'm just going to use it over and over again until it's like exhausted. 
And then, but they say you have to be ambidextrous. You also have to have to explore. You have to, there are moments in which you accept the uncertainty, you accept that things will come into being, you leave the exploitation behind. And so you have to have this both-handed approach. And I appreciate that. Like, I think that there's wisdom in that, but I also think it's a, it's, it's a way of, of letting us off the hook to ask the deeper question about when business is at its best, what does it look like? And if we have an interpretation of that, what would management look like? What would leadership look like? How would we bring ourselves to work? And it might be, it might be really different, you know, it might be different. I don't, so anyway, you're like, you're getting me philosophical on this stuff, but I, but if this kind of question drives me, because even if I'm building some little, if I'm building something like somebody says, hey, help us totally re-engineer and reimagine our performance management system, something like that, then I can take an approach that's 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 the what's the game, how do we play it? Or I can think about the Rick Rubin world and build from that. And I will get something different depending on which of the two places I start from. So it like it's practical to me, uh, sort of what your worldview is. And the way that you think about business, but we don't, you know, we don't, we, it's not like leaders sit around talking about the philosophy of business very often, or like, what is it really like when it's at its best versus when it's awful? Like, which is kind of weird. Why don't, why don't they do that? I think, and that goes back into, there isn't, I, I should have written about this today. We are addicted to doing, and I use the word addicted and in, um, intentionally because we are addicted to something. It's, you keep on doing it over and over and over again and there are times when and someone just defined it as when an addiction you have the first high and they spend time over and over again trying to chase that high but you should never actually get it and we do that in so many different ways work being one of them and therefore we never do get to slow down and the more I started to read read up about this and think about it and think about it in my head but it was thinking about rest one of the one of the biggest things that sparks and creates the best spaces for creativity is when we rest and we just slow things down and helps us chemically, physically, all those different bits and pieces. However, if I was to use the, the, the States, for example, the U.S. has the highest work rate, in a sense, of people not taking holidays um, because it's very it's highly frowned upon. Again, that doing, that doing nature. And even though you know something is good for you, i.e., Slowing down helps you to think better, helps you to be, be a lot more creative, which also leads to more productivity and therefore get the end goal you want, money. It's frowned upon and therefore end up again with a higher rate of, which is now increasing, higher rate of issues with burnout, with people with mental health issues and all that kind of stuff, which is not good for you. But that's what is still perpetuated. So even to the point you're making earlier on, the Rick, Rick, Rick Ribbon way of thinking is we know this is better and a better way to live and exist, but we still don't do it. We just still lean back into that natural way of operating, of just being, of not slowing things down or having conversations around what is right and the best thing for the business based on everything that we've seen so far, what would happen if we did things very, very differently? I guess it's why you get examples like the Patagonia one, where they did something very, very radical and everyone's like, oh my gosh, like this is incredible. But that's like one one or two or handful of organizations in the millions that exist. So why, why is that? Right. I mean, if you think about it, like empirically, you could say, oh, 
we have these weird examples of Patagonia or Rick Rubin or whatever it is, let's just say. And they're like, we love to tell stories about them, but, but most often those efforts fail. And we just happen to have the good ones that we celebrate and we love. But really the truth is that like 99% of those things fail, but the 1% that succeed, we get excited about. Or you could say, no, no, no. That's actually a way of operating that is superior in every dimension than the other one that we were describing. I don't, I think, so let's just assume, for example, like what I think what you said, which is, no, no, this other way of operating, this other interpretation of what the world is and could be is actually correct. Let's just say that's for it. Then your question is, why do we still do this other thing anyway? And I think, I mean, this is not a good answer, but I think one of it is like, we always follow the path of least resistance. Like we're always trying to max it. You know what I mean? So like, if you get in the habit, you just keep on doing it. I think that's one answer. I think another one, I don't know. I have, I, why don't I give you an idea and you tell me what you think? So I've been thinking about this a little bit, the same thing, which is I think sometimes uh, the things that we do in order to survive undermine our very ability to, uh, ability to live. So, so like, I, I got to survive. I got to pay my mortgage. I'm looking at my house. Like my house is over. My house, like I'm in this shed where we're doing this, but over here is my house. Like I got to do that. I have to fund my retirement. I have to not feel foolish. I want to feel like my career is good. Like, like all these things are part of my, the survival of my ego. But the more that we do things to survive, the more we do things that in some ways probably impoverish our ability to live, to flourish, to thrive for like good, weird stuff to happen that, which is what we really want. So I think there's some kind of dynamic in that. And I know that's, so I'm actually curious about, cause it sounds like you've been thinking about this. Like why, first of all, I'm not sure everybody knows that there's a different way and that different way is actually a good way. And you, and if you, if you live in that way enough, you'll be like, oh shit, this is like, this works. Like this is more exciting, it's dangerous, but it's exciting. Like I want to be in this space versus that space. So it takes a while for people to even believe wholeheartedly that this is a possibility. But there's got it. So it could be just that they don't see enough, but even if they see it, they, 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 they like the rubber band snapping back to like, I don't, so I, I don't know. I think it's a. I mean, it's a deep, uh, it's a deep question. I don't know what, what, like, have you landed on a hypothesis yourself about that? If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, Look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. My my hypothesis is the regardless of what people see, it is very easy to the the fear is probably the biggest thing that's come up for me that stops people from trying something different. Um, a good example I use is when I see, I mean. In the UK, for example, they talk a lot around um, money because right now I'm talking about customers doing crisis. And I'm like, okay, and so the average wage in the UK is like 27,000 like, 
pounds or something like that. Like, okay, wow, that's really low. And it's hard for people to survive and do what they need to do. And then someone I made the point and said, yeah, but if you look at that average number, it's not the case of people don't have the resources to be able to do anything. We live in an age and a time right now where they have the most amount of information available to them. But then when I start to peel it back, you have layers of um, people who have seen their parents live a particular lifestyle and they think that's a glass ceiling for them. So therefore they don't, they don't try and very differently. You have people who think, oh, just damn right lazy. <laughs> so, so that's an element to that. Um, the different elements around whether it's our structural racism, whether it's mobility issues, there's so many different layers on that kind of stuff. Is that what you end up creating is this big, massive melting pot of people who can see something and it looks good, but it's far easier to stay where I am and criticize or not move than actually take that decision. Yep. Because that decision, to your point, is dangerous. There is a high probability that it's not going to work. Regardless of the fact that what you're doing right now doesn't also work, <laughs> but you will still stay here and be comfortable here. Well, not comfortable. You complain from here. It's a lot easier to do that than move forward. And it's fascinating to me because there's so many different studies that have been done about this and have tested it on humans, animals for decades. But it's the same thing over and over again. I think part of that, like the, the flight of fright, like kind of kicks in. But it's, it's the reality of that. And when people talk about the, the 1% and the different changes, like that's because it's the 1% number is never been that wild. But the fear can hold people back for so many different reasons. I, I'm fascinated by it. Because for me, it's like you just push through it. A um, good example I give talking about this in, in corporate. I remember years ago when I first had like my first um, leadership opportunity. And I was given this team, like I was young. The youngest person on my team was, I think, 18 years older than me. So these were seasoned vets who I'm giving this team of six people. And I'm like, okay, what's this young guy who, who we've been working on and has been alive going to teach us? And my approach was like, I'm not going to teach you much because I, mean, I can't. But I can show you a different style of leadership, which is what I know, which is if I'm gonna, I can get to know you and understand really what makes you, what makes you tick, what are you trying to achieve, what you're trying to step into, all that kind of stuff. And it was a very different way of, of looking at things. And for about six to eight months, it didn't look like it was working. Like our numbers weren't great already. That's why they gave him the team in the first place. And it looked like we were just tanking. But after like a month, nine, it started to turn around. And the difference was I had really understood each and every single person in my team. I knew what levers to pull. I knew what things they had to, I had to do for them to help them to show up. And some of those were, had nothing to do with work. There were certain things that were working on outside and we spent time and all that. But then after that month nine, all that really came together. My team understood that. Their way of saying thank you was like, oh, let's just pour all our efforts into, into work. And because we have a lot more mental capacity anyway, because some of the things we're struggling with, uh, Shop has already helped us figure out, it just became natural. And they just flew past the targets and smashed it worldwide. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is phenomenal. For the first nine months, I, I was getting constant threats of, you're going to get fired if, <laughs> if, he, if this carries on because it's very different, it's very radical. But my head was like, this obviously has not worked. You give me a team for this team for a particular reason. Let's try something different. But every resistance I had around me said, this is not going to work until it did. And for me, it was very like, why do I have nothing to lose? 
But it's exactly the same thing. You have nothing to lose, but yet it's far easier to moan and complain and stay in that position. And does that sound like I'm, that's just how I see things and just basic experience I have? It's as far as for people to do that than to make that move. And it's that gap, that chasm that we can create with the story that we tell ourselves or that fear that we have that stops individuals and organizations from doing the doing exactly what we just talked about. You nailed it. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, I think there's a lot, by the way, in the way that you describe the efficacy of your leadership and the turnaround being resting on a certain kind of listening and getting to know your people, which could be a whole, whole, whole conversation we could have. But the fear thing is, it's to me, I think it is. There, it, it is a chasm. You, you, it's like it's hard to incrementally cross the chasm. You just you'll fall off the cliff, right? Like there is a bit of a, a leap that goes there. And I think it is dangerous in a way, like transgression. I mean, it's a ver- you, you were transgressing. Everybody told you that's not what you should do. Do something else. That you did it anyway because you trusted something, right, that could be better. Or you've made a bet that if I do it differently, we'll get different results because if we keep doing what we've done, we're just going to repeat the past, right? So you had some intellectual understanding of it. I, you know, it's, I'll give you one small story, which I love. So a while ago, I was doing a bunch of work with a music conservatory here in Boston. And, um, and the conservatory wasn't like the most elite at all. So, but they always had to tell a story like, oh, we're, we're going to, you're going to end up at the, you know, the BSO or the Philadelphia Philharmonic, but that never happens. That's like, you know, it's like getting into the NBA, like those musicians rarely get to that space. And so what they really started to do was they were realizing they wanted to figure out a way to teach and train musicians to have a whole life of musicianship where it could become a career. And it could be beautiful and it could be lovely. They could make enough money and they could bring music into the world. But they had to pretend that that's not what they were doing. Because out in the world, the game that you have to play is that you're always trying to train elite performers, right? And so this woman, uh, Karen Zorn, who runs the conservatory, Longy, we were talking about that. And it was like you and me, like you were talking, telling your story. But for her, it's like it was their strategy. So she's, I say, in your heart of hearts and the data that you know is Longi creating and developing elite performers or do you have your finger on the pulse of some different way of training and educating musicians that's novel and neat but not yet predictable or 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 clear yet and she's like it's the second and we kept having these conversations and one day she was like i'm just going to tell our story the actual way so she's like I'm going to say we are not training our people for elite performances. Yes, some of them will still go, um, but really we are up to something fundamentally different. And she ended up one night being in a at a at a at a dinner with this guy Leon Botstein, who is the uh, American Philharmonic conductor and uh, the president of Bard College, which is in New York. And he's the youngest college president ever in the United States. So he's like this weird special guy. And they're having dinner, and he's like, well, what, what what are you up to? Tell me about what's going on in music. And she's like, well, like, I know everybody's going left, but we're going to go right, and here's why. And he was immediately smitten, and he's like, this is awesome. We should do something together. And they it turned into they developed this wonderful relationship. Bard 
took in Longy as part of its like its sense of music school. Everything's grown since then. They've built out like pedagogy and curriculum and admissions that speak to this vision. It's really beautiful. I could tell you a whole bunch of stories about it. But well, here's so the interesting thing was at the end, I was like, oh, like tell like, you 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 went from a fear based we have to say it the way that one says it to no this is what I'm reading out of the work that we're doing and what I think music should be. Tell me about it. And she said, well, what I learned, Chatham, is that inauthenticity is exhausting, right? Like, and when I stepped all, when I jumped that chasm, things opened up. It cleaned up. I found Leon Batsi. I found an investor. I started getting better students. I started getting better faculty. So good stuff started to accrue once she made that move. And, you know, it, I think it took her a while to get there and not everybody can make that jump over that chasm. But I think that's the thing. There's like, no, if it were a line... You wouldn't see like, oh, I'm going to take a little bit more danger and then I'll get a little bit more return, which will give me a little bit more danger. No, no, it's not like that. You kind of got like, you go up and you're like, you're like, and then maybe if you're lucky, but probably since the good stuff starts to happen. I mean, she was saying things like, like, I just want to say with a second, I know I'm sort of hogging the mic here, but like the way they did their admissions recently, usually like. So if you were going to be like an applicant to this conservatory, you'd have to play some piece that has some name that I couldn't even pronounce or didn't know. You'd have to be technically perfect. You know, you know what it is. That's like what it takes to be in the elite conservatory. And they were like, don't do that. Don't do that. They'd say, so they show up and this is COVID. So you could do, you know, by Zoom or whatever. And they'd say, play a piece that moves you, that you care about, like, it doesn't have to be perfect, but they're like, and tell us why. Tell us what's going on with you. Just play. And a few things happened for this. One is they got better students because students were like, oh, Longy's up to something. Like, this doesn't feel like any of the other admissions. And they actually care about what how I'm relating to my own music, not just the technical proficiency. Um, so they, it was like it was like really good at marketing, right? You're saying we're up to something different. Um, and the students felt like they could now understand the culture of the school just through the admissions process. So this is an example of a well-designed, singular little moment in time that expressed or instantiated this bigger vision. They wouldn't have done that had Karen, I think, not made that leap, you know, years earlier. So there's this, like, when we're talking about the reality of, you know, world A versus world B, and world B is like a Rick Rubin world, I think... I, I, to me, what gets me excited, you know, almost like a little bit spiritually, but also just like, it's like, it really does work. Like you hear those stories and you're like, oh, it works. Like it works. Of course, of course, she's going to start creating better admissions policies. It's going to get better students. Of course, she's going to convince Leon Botstein to invest in her organization because she told a better story. It was more authentic. It was more interesting. It was more differentiated. Of course, some faculty are going to be like, you don't look like Juilliard, no thank you. And others are going to be like, oh, you're up to something different, so now you're attractive. So like, you know, these feedback loops start happening and then, you know, then you're, you are then you have, you've made something, you've made a mark in the world, you've done it your way, you've shown that you're free. I think this is an important thing. Like, if you're always saddled by the fear and you're always following the paths of least resistance, are you really free? I mean, you're kind of just like in, you're automatic, Right. That's just being automatic. That's just following scripts. But when you're in this other world, there is no script, but you're doing it for the right reason. And you're literally free. The world is a little bit, you set the world a little bit free, right? Because Karen didn't know all those things that were going to happen that would have turned Longy into the Longy it is today. 
just like Rick Rubin didn't know that like Johnny Cash would have like, you know, completely reset his career and make beautiful music. But it's not surprising that it happened because, you know, he understood the value of the path and that's the way he, that's the path he chooses to walk. So I, you know, I think there's something, I hate to make binaries, but like, like the fact that your story was like similar, I just think, I think it's a truth. And I think we have not accepted that truth. And I'm sure a lot of people would say this is silly, this is naive, or that's for certain circumstances or certain situations. But like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think it might be that the world just operates this other way and we have misinterpreted the way the world actually works, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And 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 hundred percent I wanna get that everything we're talking about right now sounds like a fairy tale because I see. Because you're like <laughs> you're not a serious thinker, you're talking about fairy tales like, <laughs> like, great. Even like it sounds very much like a fairy tale that the reality is the world is operate this way. Um even some of the examples you gave, like your wife is shared and there is a level of people say there's a level of privilege that comes with being able to be courageous and take bold moves and do all that kind of stuff. Yes, to a point, I can agree with that, but there's also a point where I don't, because I feel that for me, part of that is the story that we tell ourselves. To that example, she could have carried on that way in particular, and what she stood to lose was what eventually happened, because he would have been like, oh, nothing new there. Why am I getting fascinated by this? It's just normal and just ignored. And there'd been a real relationship there. So she was willing to do something different against the norms of the industry. That has nothing to do with privilege. Cause actually in theory, her move was even more riskier because she could end up leaving the job and she now becomes the person. And we know in that particular circle, if you get say blackboard or blacklisted in one of those areas, it becomes a massive issue all the way around. So there's a lot he had to risk to give up. Even with Rick Rubin's um, story, he's, he shared about in the past that even when he made certain moves and certain decisions, people were asking him, why are you doing that? Like, why are you starting Def Jam? Why are you going down that path and all that kind of stuff? That's nothing to do with this as a fad. There were so many different things around that. So there's still a risk that people take on that I think we forget about because we just go, oh, that person's privileged or that person can make that decision. And back to conversation we're having around even leaders in organizations, I guess that's the, that's the risk that they have to battle with of, am I willing to do this? Because if I get this wrong, or this looks so different, more than likely I'm going to get fired. And therefore it's a lot safer for me to carry and do what I've been doing before. I was supposed to do something very, very different. Yeah. It's tricky. Cause I think there's like a version of the, st like a lot of the people who do the weird stuff that ends up being really generative they they often do it in circumstances in which they have nothing to lose, right? In some cases, the more that you have to lose, the more locked in. You're going to play defense, right? If you've got a lot to lose, which is, you know, large companies, but even each of us individually. So, I mean, a lot of the startups become great startups because they're like in a garage with no money and they've got nothing like that they would lose if they failed. So it's also kind of, it's like maybe fear. I'll give an example. So I was talking with a large company and we were trying to find leaders who are have an outsized impact in the organization, like like just way like their impact on people, the culture, shaping the industry was just huge. And we found that there was like a couple of them that had way bigger impact than everybody else. And 
while we were doing this, we found that there were a lot of women. And so I was having a conversation with another very senior level woman about that. I was like, yeah. And then the natural networks were all female. And I was like, what's going on? Why do you think? And she had a hypothesis. I don't know if this is true, but her hypothesis was, look, if you're, and this is a global company, if you're like a, a middle-aged, English-speaking, you know, white guy, whatever, you you are probably already sitting on a fiefdom or the possibility of a career that's going to be good. And so you are inherently going to learn very good defensive tactics to keep it. She said, if you're a woman and you don't belong here, not yet, this everything's changing, then you are going to learn and hone offensive te techniques. You're going to learn how to talk a certain way, how to like build networks in a certain way, think asymmetrically in a certain way. And just like evolution, right? You're going to have mutations and the, and the environment's going to select for it because you have to do that in order to survive. You can't play this other game. And she's like, that's why I think women are getting really exciting right now is because they've had to develop a different style that's actually more, it's better for our company. And that's why you're seeing a lot of like really good leadership. Uh, uh, the ratio is more women coming up doing this. Not all the case. There's like, there was quite a few men too. But I think that might be it. Like there's like, there's fear. I mean, I just think it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know what you think about it, which is, would you, would you rather lead a life that's safe? And I'm not saying this as like a setup. This isn't a softball. Would you rather lead a life that is safe, but, in a, but assured to some extent? Or would you rather live a life in which the hallmarks of that life would be constantly living in this uncertainty or risk? But what you would get is a kind of freedom and not knowing what would unfold and which life would you choose. And I think it's easy like to romanticize. Well, of course, I'd want the risky emergent life that like, I don't know where it's going to go. But if you were to say, well, let's have an answer to that based on what people actually do. I mean, most of us, I mean, even I, in a way, like I'm like, I have all sorts of conservative ways of thinking is like, conservative is not the right way, risk averse ways of thinking. It's, it's, um, I don't know. There's something, I don't know. Maybe it's like at the end of the day, it's like something each of us has to work out for ourselves. I don't know. I mean, I feel like this conversation we're having, it's landed on a true, a human truth that we all have. This is, everybody's got to wrestle with this thing. But it's like, like, I don't know what more to say about it other than it seems to be a fact of human existence. It certainly is a fact, even at the collective level for organizations and institutions. And I don't think we've got, or I haven't seen yet, pivotal insights on it that would all convince people, to your point, to go, oh, this other way is better. It produces more often. Yes, you're going to experience probably more risk, but rationally speaking i'm going to do it like we we just are there yeah no yeah. we're not there we're like not i don't there. i don't know i don't know what to say hundred percent agree that we we are <laughs> we are we are not there and and that's why i also 100 percent agree that it's it's a personal choice it's um because people there's so many different layers to who we are um our backgrounds our dynamics um our mindset that can easily just influence the way that we make decisions. And that's why I'm very much like, 
everyone's going to do what they need to do for themselves. But just make sure that when you're making that decision, you're making that decision for you, not just based on the environment or this is what's been done. I think that's where, for me, that's where you have a difference. That's supposed to think about every single thing. Yeah, this is why I make that decision. I can say that 100%. Good. But I'm just doing this because I'm just doing this to go along. I'm like, eh, that one, I'm, I, <laughs> I push up against I'm like, no, I want you to say Take the time to really think about it for yourself. And why is this important to you? Why are you going down this particular path? Because to your point, for me, that's authentic. If it is like, I don't want to do this because I'm risk-based with da 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 fair enough. You've thought about it, you've done that work, but don't just go along, get along. Like, that's not that's not living. Yeah, it's not living. But you nailed it. I think this is, I feel like you have more wisdom on this in a way on, than I do because you're saying, your counsel is, you're not browbeating somebody to be like, live a risky life that's, you know, you're saying it's a choice and you're going to be, but know that it is a choice. It's not a non-choice. It's not automatic that you have to go this way, but you're not romanticizing the other one to such an extent that it feels obvious. Cause I think that's, it's a version of people saying you should always be benchmarking. Right. So like, I think what you said that I liked is, which I don't do enough is returning the question to the person. Like, and just saying, you you do have a choice. They are different paths, probably. Whatever you choose is... But then I like your... I mean, you're, you kind of have like a nice, classic, existential look, which is like, even if you choose the A path, if you do that consciously, that's good. To do it unconsciously is is not so good, right? So I, I think that's like... I think that's right. Because I think there's there's been many moments in my life in which it was right to choose the path of least resistance in moments because I wasn't prepared to live in this other world, you know, or I had young kids or I wasn't strong enough or, you know what I mean? It's like, you can't always throw yourself on the fire all the time. Like, then you just burn up. Yeah, no good to anyone that way. Well, there's something in particular that as you think about it over the years, that shifted for you, that got you into that space of, of, of this, whether it's the kids growing up or just being like, you know, I just want to try something different. So I'm going to give you an answer that's ugly. <laughs> I'll take it. Good, bad, and ugly. I'll take it all. So I think if I take my career in the last, let's say, three years, I'm doing way more of what we're talking about now, living in the Rick Rubin world. And by the way, it might reverse itself. You know, the economy could tank, all the sorts of bad things could happen, and all of a sudden I'm doing what everybody else might do. It was actually, um, I think, feeling financially secure enough. I had started my own business. We did some stud startups. So I've like lived through like making nothing with three kids and living in an apartment. Like, so I like, I know what that's like, but at some point I didn't want to live that way anymore. And it was weird. I found like the, like, like, so I have clients and I would want to tell the clients the truth. I would want to do what's best for them. But I also knew that if I did that, I run the risk of losing that client and I can't lose that contract, right? Because I have all these things. So what was odd is that the more, the more I began to accrue a stable base of financial resources, it was then that I could go, oh, I'm going to do this the right way. So this is, and the reason I feel bad about saying this is because like, 
that's the reality of my, that, that's not the romantic, like I had nothing. I mean, there are moments, sure, where I had very little and I took the risk and it worked out. That's, I've lived that life too. But in this case, me feeling to being able to do it all the time is because I've got of a, a, a stable enough foundation that even if I like wreck the car, the whole world's not going to end. And that, so that's given me permission. And you know, like a lot of people have that. They like, they call it the go to hell money. Like you accrue a bunch of money over the course of your early, you know, 10, 20 years. And it, it's called go to hell money, which means if your boss is really bad or you're in a toxic environment or you're not doing what you want, you can be like, I'm out of here. And you can be out of there. So that freedom gives you choice. So there's something, I mean, this is one of the reasons I really am interested in the universal basic income and things like that. It's like, it's all fun and good to talk about risks. And we, you, you mentioned it a few times, but if you really are going to end up in trouble, it's hard to do that, right? Like you need, you need, I think, I don't, I don't actually, I think, I think I've needed it. So now I feel more comfortable now that I'm like, I'm like middle-aged, I guess. Um, it's kind of like if I was an academic, like now I have tenure and I can like pursue the paths that I want. <laughs> right. Although tenure, I don't think tenure works like that, but it does because you get free to do your cop lunch to do what you want and fed somebody to you. So yeah. 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 So I mean, that's a, I didn't think that's a, I wish I had a cooler answer that was like some truth about that I had like recognized about myself. But at the end of the day, you know what? It's about having enough money that I'm not so afraid that I won't take the risk. That's like the, that's like, yeah, that's not, that is just normal. So I'm just that. Yeah. So I, that's a, but it's weird because other people get enough money to take the risk and then they don't. And I don't know why they don't, you know, there's people who have too much money, you know, and they don't do any. That's <laughs> <laughs> There's, there's so many levels to this. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really, I mean, I don't know if it's funny. This I don't know if this podcast makes it out to your listeners or not, but it's like, I really, in my mind, I really think, and, I, and I've been wanting to lay this out. There are really two, there's not just two paths, you know, this the le- the right the normal right the normal right path and then the left path maybe the left path is Rick Rubin path or whatever or the Karen path. There is also the reason why they have those paths is because they have an interpretation of the way the world can and does really work. And so the world is either like this or it's like that. And I think these two things are really different. And I want to learn more about them because I think the more that we can at least shed light on the other world. Um, both worlds, actually, both worlds. So the one world that's the game, that's the system, that's the thing that one ought to do, whatever, full of metrics and da-da-da-da. Like, we need to know what that is so you can see it, you can recognize it, you know, oh, I'm in this space, do I want to do it or not? And it's different from this other space. But then you got to know this other world, too. And I feel like it would be really cool to um, characterize them richly enough it's almost like if you were providing coaching to somebody and you said, it's your choice, you would go, and let me describe for you these two worlds. You know, like, so you can imagine which of the two is going to be right for you and which one you believe to be actually real or a figment or a fantasy or a fairy tale and which one is like concrete reality. And I, I think oddly enough, 
oddly enough, really, the fairy tale is the normal world. That is just a bunch of people agreeing that something exists and is real. And so it has that existence because people repeat it over and over again. That can be just as much an illusion as the Rick Rubin world, for sure. So maybe, you know, we tend to like make fun of maybe to some extent or think that it's too idealistic or it's not real. But I wonder sometimes if it's the opposite. So anyway, like painting a more vivid picture of these two worlds, I think would be helpful. It would be helpful for me because I want to spot it. Like, and for me, even with kids, like my kid, my oldest now is starting to, you know, she'll be thinking about college and the admissions process to get in college is all of that world. You got to make grades, like a test, like is a test, like does a test really advance the kind of learning that we want our kids to have? Like, I'm, like I think sometimes yes, and I'm other times no. Does the admissions process to get into a good college, does that really stimulate and engender like the types of things that we want our kids to be able to learn and develop and have the capacity for as they like, you know, then they shape the world. And I'm like, I don't know, that seems like a bit of a racket. Like some of it seems like a real racket to me, even though it's imbued with all the things we care about prestige. Like who doesn't want their kid to make A's, you know, like all that kind of stuff. But like, I feel like the more if I paint, a, if I could paint a picture of like how games get played and what they look like, then I could tell my daughter and say, Sophia, like, you're going to be preparing for school and you're going to have all these choices of what you want to do to get ready for that school, if even if you want to go at all. But just know that some of what everybody tells you you should do could be a scam. I don't mean like a real scam, but I mean a scam for you and your life. And there might be this other thing that you could fall in love with some unusual topic or find a path to learning or whatever, whatever. And that's real too. And I want you to know you can play between these however you want. And I feel like if I could say that to her and I could be convincing, which I probably can't for my daughter, but if I could, I would feel like I'm doing a really good job as a dad. I'm not telling her what to do, just like you said, but I'm, I'm, like, I'm showing her like, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. You have to figure out what's right for yourself. You really, really do. And it's not automatic. Now, you know, a 16, 17, eight-year-old may not have the, cognitive capacity to like wade through all that you know like we're older we've lived some life we like you see it enough but i wish she did uh i like a lot a lot i think i think i think if she knew she could, she you could have totally different lives i don't right i mean i do you, i feel like i'm going out rabbit hole with this nah is it like make is it speaking to you at all i mean i swear to god i keep doing the, like this is the space that I'm in in my career and it's either ridiculous and stupid and silly or there's like some element. And I don't even think it's that original. I think people have been talk, telling this story, the, the th this thing you're talk, we're talking about. People have said this in different language and different words for a very long time now. There's nothing like novel about it. It's just how much we get it, I think, is the, is the question. People have been talking about this for a long time. But I think it's also quite clear about it's difference in talking about it and doing it there's not a lot of the fact that we have less examples that we can point to and be like this is what this looks like and that's still seen as so out there whereas the 95% of the rest of the population live in a particular way 
just shows that there's a difference between implementation or application, should I say, and the philosophical and that move and that shift. It's probably why we're still having conversations like this. We're still trying to figure it out. Like, what does it actually look like? Also, more importantly, recognizing that actually there are different people doing it in very different ways. I mean, the work that you do, for example, going into organizations and challenging them and thinking outside the box and coming up with new creative ways of doing things is a very anti-corporate way of, of operating, but it's a way that change begins to exist. And there's so many other examples like that. So I think it's also important to know that there is work and there are people who are doing things very, very differently. Well, because it's small and it's new and it's different, it's going to take time before that becomes the norm. I mean, three years ago, working from home, only on average 30% of organizations allowed that worldwide. Now that number's doubled, even post-pandemic. If something massive happened that changed the way that we operate and removed a lot of the excuses that organizations previously had. So there are, and bear in mind, prior to that, for the part 20 years, people talked about working from home. So it's exactly the same cycle of there are ways of showing up, ways of living, ways of operating, both from a personal and professional perspective that we see and we recognize and we have examples and data for. But it's just that shift takes time to change what is seen as the norm. It's true. Maybe you need more models. I mean, I was thinking about it. So when Vanessa was like, she, Vanessa literally said to me, like, you can't do that world if you have kids. Right. And we talked about that. And then, but then like, I was like thinking about that as we were talking and I was like, I, it's actually the opposite. I would want my kids to see me in moments living successfully in that world. So they knew it was possible. Right. Like it's the opposite. I don't want, it's sort of so, like if they look at their dad, they're like, dad's just trying to make money to pay the mortgage to do this and that. And he wants us to go to good schools and he wants his retirement, da, 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 da. Like, and he's following these scripts. Like they're only seeing one path. And I was like, I felt like guilty. I was like, am I showing my kids enough of like some alternative possibility? There's this other kid down the street. He like, we did like this. He helped us make this big raised bed for our garden. And he was pretty good at it. And then, there's like a, uh, a like a Votech school. I don't know if you guys have this in England, but you can you can go to a instead of going like a high school that prepares you for college, there's other schools that prepare you for like trades essentially. And there's one near us that's very very good. And we live in a neighborhood where like the normal expected thing is like you're going to go to college, right? And probably like a pretty decent college. In this case, this kid is like really good with his hands. He's a good carpenter, and he's training right now to be a finished carpenter. And he's really good. And he like, I got enough jobs to buy himself a pickup truck. And when I, and like, he's going to go for it. He's good. And I'm like, like, he's inspiring, right? Like he broke off the path, found something he loved. He's exceptionally good at it. It's real. It's physical. He's making stuff. He's not in this like weird world that I'm in, which is like consulting, which is like vapor all the time. He's like literally constructing things and building them and making houses better than they were before. And I was like so excited for this kid. He, I felt like he was living the path. Like he was like, I'm not, and I, and I, and I almost want my kids to see more of that. Like, see, I want, I want to, I want, the, I want half of their experiences to be with people like that. Think about that. If you have, if you're with your, with your daughter and son, if they just were exposed to more atypical 
yet effective and successful examples of living a certain kind of life, uh, they would be less likely to fall into the habits and the routines that most of us are all, all you know, we grew up with. And yeah, cause I think you're right. Like we're just, we're just philosophizing. We're just like, if, until you put your own skin in the game, you know, until you, until you put yourself at risk, it's all just talk. You know, it really is just, it's just like, we can know you and I can like, maybe we could both say, do you agree with me? And I agree. Do we agree that the world could be this way? We and this is why I think Vanessa cried. And I was like, well, why don't we do it? And I think that was like her feeling of like, wait, I, I, I'm not sure we're living the way that what we really think is true. And you guys could do the same thing. We could have this conversation. It's intellectually stimulating. And then like, what happens tomorrow? Do you do, you do it or don't? It's not easy. I can, I can speak from experience. <laughs> but you had a taste. Well, maybe that's the thing is you, if you, like I'm, I would assume after you had that experience with that group, and you were, you know, something good happened and you took a path that was different from what people told you to take that like you gained a glimpse into that different world. You're like, wait a second, you know, did, did it start to grow? Did you like that capacity for doing more of it more often? Oh yeah. It's, it's been, it became part of my, became part of my narrative because I've always been someone who hate boxes and I hate being confined and was someone who's tried to feed my curiosity. And to that point, because we also had, we have, yeah, both our kids quite young. One of the things that I always wanted to do is never be in a position where my kids can call me out and be like, oh, daddy, you didn't do this. Or daddy, you didn't do that. So they've seen me over the years take leaps of faith. I mean, I quit my corporate job like eight years ago without nothing to actually, I didn't have anything lined up. It literally was like a leap of faith is to create. So they've seen me navigate that space and we've had conversations over the years and they've got used to that mentality in that mindset where it's like all right this looks a bit different this feels very risky no it doesn't feel risky it is risky um but i feel led or feel called to step into this and here's what i'm here's me and mom have the conversation here's what we're gonna do here's how we're gonna approach it you talk about this out loud with your kids afterwards (laughs) (laughs) i have a conversation with my wife about it around this is what going to do. So we have those kind of conversations. When I like when I quit corporate many years ago, that conversation with my wife, I say was like probably one of the hardest conversations I ever had. But she's like, you know what? Go for it. We we started with absolutely nothing. Like we had less than nothing. And maybe to get to a decent point, we'll figure out. But this is something that feels like you've been called to do, so step into that. And that led to a lot of series of stuff over the years. So and afterwards I can have a conversation with my kids about it and be like, that is that is left his job, and this means that I'm the main bread of my house. This means that for a period of time, things are going to be very hard and things are going to be very tough. Um, and they were still little, and my son was like eight or nine, until seven, so they didn't like, completely understand it. But now, over the years, when they see stuff happen, like most recently, um, just due to all the layoffs and stuff happening, the one of the contracts I was working on um, got paused. So I had a conversation with my son about it. And I was like, oh, this is this com- contract I was working on, but due to the economy, they've paused it because they're trying to figure out what's happening in the company. And my son is trying to be like, okay, dad, that's cool. You figure it out. You get something new. You always do. And it, for him, it was just, that's his mentality now. Whereas like when adversity happens or when challenges happen, like I'm that kind of person where I'm, like, I'm not going to let it stop and define me. But it makes it so much easier when we're having conversations with him around school and like, 
This is exactly the same thing you're allowed to date, and you see me do it. So there's no it's in fact a little better for you because you're younger. So it makes those conversations a lot easier and real to be able to be there. Does he has he translated that? Like, do you, have, do you see uh, not to say this about, but like, do you see the filter from hey, I took risks. Now I talk to him about or and my daughter about it, and now they have a little bit more room to feel the same way. Can they like? Can you? Mo- I mean, I think the modeling thing is really interesting. The mother, the mother thing's important. I wouldn't say the results have been as direct as I thought they would be. I think what I've seen has been it's planted seeds from when they were younger to now that they're a little bit older. There are certain conversations, there are certain things that I see play out when I'm like, oh, that's I can link that back to like a conversation four or five years ago. What I wanted to do was they're getting it. They're <laughs> but in it straight away and that was very frustrating for me because I'm like I'm happy taking risks because I want to model this in particular as well as create to go last stuff for my family but they're not they don't seem to like the kids don't seem to get it but it's that recognition that yeah they're going to get it but they're going to get it and apply it in their own way in their own generation in their own time so I can't say so you don't plant and harvest in the same season so it's recognizing that fact and shifting away from that is be like all right just keep on doing what you're doing you know why you're doing it that's super important so that that has been the the shift of seeing it as they got older to have those kind of conversations yeah i love that it's so it's so i mean it is it's amazing with children that you do all this work and you don't get the payoff for a long time you know it's like a really long and you, you have to do the right thing anyway and you don't know that you're going to get paid off by the way it's the same kind of uncertainty you're like you don't know and then maybe they start to get older and you start to see a little bit you're like 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 you know like you if you're like talking about character or doing the right thing and they start to do the right thing and you're like oh my gosh this is what i've been talking about since we're three years old and finally it's emerging and i had to wait you know 10 15 years for it to happen it's a long payoff. Uh, it's nothing to do with innovation or creativity, but like, I mean, to this extent though, like being a father or a mother, you know, is an act of clearly leadership, but also creativity, right? Like you're constantly building a world for your children to inhabit. You, you are pri- the primary architect and you could build it in a lot of different ways. And, you know, it's possible it could shape them in ways that you could never even be able to understand. So, anyway, that's another. We you should do another podcast on parenting. That would be. Oh, we don't get down to the real. It's about being a parent. As we wrap this up, this has been honestly a fascinating conversation, which I've loved. Um, how do you define leadership? I think if we had some time, I could tell you what I I feel fairly confident in creates good leadership or leadership but um i don't think i have a definition for it um yeah and maybe defining it as part of the problem you know again this gets back to this other stuff that we we're talking about one of the things i like to, i'll give you i'll say one thing closing down what i found working with around leadership a lot especially lately is I'm tired of competency models. I'm tired of like capabilities, discrete behaviors, you know, these three things, that five things. 
What I like to see instead is to show people concrete, tangible examples of what good leadership looks like, how it works, and what was its consequence, and understand the difference between that and the opposite. Less less abstract talk, less management, buzzy words, and more like, they did this and this, this is what happened, because of that, this happened, because of that, this happened, like are in this particular domain that matters to us, and here's an example of the exact opposite. I think people see enough of those Good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, and you you and you you begin to internalize a, a better heuristic about it for yourself than having some like consultant or HR person like hit you over the head with the latest like slide deck on on leadership. So that's to me, it's much more like I just like to go hunting for the stories. Like plus, those are exciting. Like and they're all over the place in your organization. So that'd be my answer: less definitions, more stories. Uh, good and bad stories. I think that would do us all a lot of good. Yeah. And stories are the ones that stick, that they resonate with you. You remember them as opposed to models because stories are the pull and the emotion and you can relate to something like, tangible in there. Yeah, I love that. So, yeah. Yeah. This has been, this has been a dope conversation. Like, I've loved <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm awesome this. Like we are, this is coming out. This is coming out. This is a very like been a very gray like philosophical conversation, but also like getting in deep and tangible and exploring. And I think to you, to the point you made earlier on, though, the more we can create spaces to have conversations like this, rather than be like, oh yeah, but it's never gonna happen. Those offenses, like no, but how do you how do you go for a goal that you never actually focus on that you don't even know about that you just completely dismiss out of your mind? I think when you hear people talking about stuff. And it sparked something inside of you that actually, you know, I can create that. And maybe that's not impossible. So I think these conversations are super important. I know I definitely enjoyed it. So. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the same thing. I think, I mean, like us having this conversation, I have like a conversation with like a, a couple of different colleagues every two weeks. Not No purpose, no agenda, no, no, I need something from you. It's just like, let's see what's going on. But it's like this because you hear their stories and you, and you're like, oh, you can do that. Like, and you start to build up this confidence that that this is exciting, this is interesting. Other really smart people who are successful are like playing in this and they're failing too, but they're making things happen. And it becomes more uh instead of just being an unexpected surprise that's delightful, it becomes like, no, no, like you could play in that space. Like, but it takes a lot of like the more conversations you have, the more you start to believe, at least for me. Like, so this has been great for me too to hear your stories to have, to give you, give me some space. I didn't think I was going to go here. I, I feel like I'm, I feel like I said some crazy things. Well, if I get in trouble, I'm like, <laughs> only you look wantable for this. Oh my uh, way. <laughs> <you> cool? uh, <laughs> people are like, Chatham's way out there, dude. Just like, you know, fewer contracts for Chatham. Um, so anyway, thank you. That's been an absolute pleasure. This is Everyday Leadership. See you next week. While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. I like to bask in my humility and I think um, 
you know, my friends, uh, they always say to me, we don't know you're working with, you know, you did a pilot for increasing leadership with Amex or, or, or Google or Sony Music and Spotify. Like, you don't talk about this. Or um, even, even I went to Seattle to do some work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, a few weeks back. And I was so worried about posting on LinkedIn because, I don't know, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working on learning to humble brag 